Well, good morning. Hey. You know, it was Valentine's Day a little while ago. Did anyone notice? My wife is so great. Every now and again, she'll just put on her wedding dress, wear it around the house. Now, it's not that she's so nostalgic about the day we got married. It's just that she gets behind on the laundry sometimes. <laughs> I'm kidding. But here's more of our laundry. This morning, you might be wondering about what this is all about. Uh, today is our annual uh, general meeting at 6 o'clock tonight. And uh, it's a wonderful event. Uh, I'm really excited about this one, especially the bonus item that we've never done before, an appreciative inquiry, appreciative, let me see if I can say it, appreciative inquiry process that we're going to go through tonight, just sort of gaining feedback from our membership and really excited about, uh, and it's not just for members, you can come if, if uh, you're curious about the annual meeting, come and be a part of it. We'd love to have uh, all sorts join us for tonight. So that's 6 o'clock. But it's a great opportunity, uh, because it is our annual meeting, uh, to talk about um, why we as a church exist. It's really good, good timing for that. So uh, that's what I'm going to try to help us do this morning, launching a new teaching series and also helping us become more familiar with why our church, what, why our church exists, what it actually exists to do. So... Can anyone in the audience just, if, now you, this, you're disqualified if you're an elder. You can't do this if you're an elder, and you can't do this if you're like on the pastoral staff team. So if you're on the elder team or the staff team, you can't do this. But uh, can anyone just quickly just jump up and recite Hillcrest mission statement? Close. <laughs> well, there we go. I definitely need to teach on this, don't I? Well, let me just, let's, let's put it up on the, on the overhead here. Can we, can we get that slide up there? Is it, we'll see if we can get it up there for a second. It really should have been quite easy this morning, actually, to do this. We've had all sorts of, uh, you should have seen the team this morning, and they really were a team, but just working crazy to get uh, everything repositioned so that we could actually have words on the overhead for today. Actually, here, let's just go to the, let's go to the clothesline. This will be the future of PowerPoint. Every week, we're going to print new t-shirts with the song lyrics that you need to sing, and then I'm going to walk behind and just point. And it's the future. I tell you, it's the future. Okay, so <laughs> this is our mission statement. Actually, most of it's up here. That's why I thought somebody would be clever enough to pick it up, and, but you know, it's actually a little hard because there's a few mi key words missing, but the mission statement is, oh, there it is, we strive to see all people reconciled to God and mature in Christ. Here, I'm going to attempt to move this safely. There we go. Hopefully more people can see then. All right. So we strive to see all people reconciled to God and mature in Christ. Of course, it's up on the PowerPoint. How about we just say it together? We strive to see all people reconciled to God and mature in Christ. That's our church's mission statement. So now you know. So next time I'm asking you to say it, maybe I'll have an incentive. I don't know, a chocolate bar or something. But you could be the first one up and you could say it. It'd be awesome. It'd be a great moment. 
How does our mission statement line up with Jesus' mission statement? That's where I want to begin. Uh, and we're going to begin in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Uh, this is what's often called the Great Commission. So Jesus is, is uh, sort of commissioning his followers with something they need to do. And, uh, and it's, it's the Great Commission, it's called. And uh, let's just read it. And then I want to come back to our mission statement. You can look at the clothesline to reference. And uh, that'll help you to, to walk, follow along. So it says, then Jesus, this is Matthew 8, 28, 18 to 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So let's just, let's just take the mission statement that we have and compare it to Jesus' mission statement. So, therefore, go. Go is an action word. It's an action word. It, it implies intent, direction, purpose, a plan. It's not go willy-nilly. It's actually go on purpose. Well, we strive. I think this is the action part of our mission statement. It's saying that we actually have purpose, strategy, direction, intent. We strive. We work. We put effort. There's sweat involved. There's creativity involved. There's, there's planning. We actually intend to do something. Go. We strive. I, th I think it matches up pretty good. Then it goes on to say, and make disciples of all nations. Well, this one says all people. I don't know if you can see it, but it says all people. We believe here at Hillcrest that all people matter to God. You'll never, ever, 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 ever lock eyes with another human being that doesn't matter to God. We believe that. We believe that. It doesn't matter what type of person, what kind of label you could put on them. We believe that uh, God loves them, Christ dies for them, died for them, and that they matter immensely to God. And as a result, they should matter to us. If we're Jesus' followers, they should matter to us like they matter to him. So, so far, so good. Let's go to the next one. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, the interesting thing about baptizing is you do that after a person has experienced reconciliation with God. After they've experienced the forgiveness of God, after they've accepted the leadership of God for their lives, that is, baptism is the sign that a person has been reconciled with God. And we often have a baptism up here. So it, we, if you haven't seen a baptism here at Hillcrest, basically take a person and there's a big tank of water and they get fully drenched in the water and they come back up. And it's a symbol. Uh, it's great. It's like acting out a drama. You know, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is the game changer for every one of us. Right? We're acting out what happened to Jesus and saying what happened to Jesus is the absolute game changer for our lives. It's the TSN turning point in my life, not just Jesus' life. And so when a person is baptized, they're testifying. They're speaking about the fact that they have been reconciled to God. And that's the, the, the way that they demonstrate that for others. And then here's the last part. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. How do you become mature in Christ? Well, you get good teaching, the teachings of Jesus, the 
teaching of his early disciples, and you obey it, right? Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And as you pay attention to that teaching, as you obey that teaching, you become mature in Christ. What does that mean? It means more and more, day by day, month by month, year by year, your character becomes more like the character of Jesus. And so old selfish patterns drop away and new loving patterns begin, right? You, you know, it's, it's crazy when you think about how much Jesus loved, how much Jesus served, how Jesus could forgive even the people who are killing him. He chose to forgive them. And you say, wow, like that enough in, on itself. It just love, serve, and forgive like Jesus. I mean, there's lots more of his character traits you could talk about. Uh, you know, his mercy, his compassion, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Even if you talk about just those three, can you imagine your life more and more, more loving like Jesus, more willing to serve and actually serving like Jesus, uh, being able to forgive anyone who hurts you, even those who might have a plan out to kill you? Wow, that's character transformation. That's maturity in Christ. And that's the path that God's got for us. So I would say that our mission statement lines up really good with Jesus' commission statement. And obviously, there's no, that's not an accident, right? It's not an accident. We, we try to pay attention to what the Bible says about what Jesus wants his followers to do. So this week, I want to just take us on a journey with this first statement on the t-shirt. We strive. We strive. And we'll have three more weeks where we'll talk about the three other statements up there. But this week, we want to just talk about we strive. Philippians 1.27, I like this one. I think this is my favorite one when it talks about uh, the we part and the striving together. Philippians 1.27 and, yeah. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or, 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 only, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together, as one for the faith of the gospel. That's great. You stand together, firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Now, what if that was Hillcrest's reputation? Well, not just reputation, but actually it's reality. I mean, what if, like Paul is saying, he's talking about the church in a different town, in the town of Philippi. He's saying, wow, he says, Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then whenever, then if I come and I hang out with you guys, I'll see it's true. Or I'll even hear about it from miles and miles away. The church in Philippi is united, striving as one for the faith of Christ. It's incredible what's happening in that church. I'd love for that to be the message about Hillcrest. Now, I think in part some of that's already in place. I think we have a great foundation to build on. We have a, a great degree of unity. And I think we can build on that. But this striving together, like just being a, a team together. You ever think about that? A church like a team. All aiming towards the same goal. Incredible. Incredible. I love this verse and how it describes uh, what a church can be. Actually, what a church should be. Standing firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. All right, let's talk more about the we part. 
Colossians 1.28. He is the one, he's talking about Jesus, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. That's cheating, getting to the mature in Christ verse. But I love the fact it's just saying, here's the one we proclaim. Now, again, this is Paul. He's writing another letter to a different church. But he's saying, this is what we do. This is what we do. It isn't just what I do, Paul. This is what we do. This is what we're called to. We proclaim Christ. We proclaim, we, we, sell the, we talk about Jesus. And our goal in doing that, in admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, is that someday we'll present people fully mature in Christ. We'll be able to say, look at the transformation in these people's lives. Because we own this together. Because we, not I, but we own this together, this process of transformation and and teaching and admonishing one another, saying, man, let's become like Jesus in this hardship. Let's become like Jesus in this situation that presents itself. In this challenge, in this situation, let's walk it out like Jesus would walk it out. And if we don't find that love in our heart that Jesus has, let's cry out to him and ask him to change our hearts to be like his heart. Let's own this baby together. Let's own it. We proclaim. We may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Philemon, verse verse 6. There's only one chapter in Philemon. It says, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. This is, this is one of the big bonuses, the big surprise bonuses of, of partnering in the faith of Christ. Is that as you are working together, trying to help other people in this process of, one, being reconciled to God, so you're explaining for, to people for the very first time maybe, or maybe for the seventh time or the 45th time, you're trying to explain to somebody how it is that someone comes into relationship with God, how their sins can be forgiven, how they can go from being uh, either enemies of God or indifferent towards God to actually being friends of God. You're explaining this reconciliation process to people. And as you do it, as you do it, you have this huge side benefit that you didn't expect come come into your life, this dynamic dynamic come into your life. As you partner with us in the faith, may it be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. So as you partner together, as we partner together, we're going to experience this side benefit, this, this bonus benefit, that as we're trying to reach other people with the good news about Jesus, trying to help explain the good news of Jesus to other people, we ourselves are going to go deeper in that same good news. It's going to become even better news to us. We talked about that in the fall. We talked about that in the fall. We talked about how, how, is, the good, how is the news about Jesus good news to you? Has it become good news to you? Well, that's the first part, but But how has it become good news to you? It's probably become good news to many of you in very specific ways. I remember, uh, I've shared this many times, but I traveled with a team for uh, a a year back in the early 90s. 
across Western Canada. We did a whole, whole bunch of high school presentations. Christian team. And uh, we were talking about Jesus, lots of places where we went. But if we took time just to do an inventory of our team, like, what drew you to Jesus? It was amazingly diverse. Like, uh, Glenn talked about, a guy on my team, he talked about how he'd had so many friendships that didn't work out in high school and, 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 and people would, you know, betray him or stab him in the back or different experiences where he, when he got into a tough time, no one was there for him. And then he discovered that Jesus was a friend who sticks closer than a brother and that he will never leave him or forsake him. And that became powerful in his life to know that he could have someone absolutely rock-solid, dependable, that he would, nev- he would never be alone again. And that's what drew him to Jesus. Now, after that, he experienced all sorts of other good things about Jesus that became good news to him. But that was the good news, right? I remember um, Jason couldn't kick his drug dependency. Struggling uh, with uh, all sorts of, you know, getting involved in gang activity and, you know, trouble with the police and all sorts of stuff. Needed a new life. Needed a brand new life. And that Jesus came along and was the deliverer who set him free from all sorts of these things in his life. So it's the freedom that Jesus brought into his life that was the, it was the huge good news that he was relaying about. And then I could go through the whole team, everybody, story after story after story after story. And it was just like, this is why Jesus is good news to me. This is what I've experienced. Now, as the longer you walk with Jesus, you should experience layer upon layer upon layer of good news. Every good thing we share, deepening your understanding. I pray, let me back it right up. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith, how about, let's say it this way. I pray that your partnership with Hillcrest Church, our partnership, we share it, may be effective in deepening our understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. I think that's a fair prayer to pray for our church, that we would experience that together. Now, what's, what's the problem with doing we? The problem with doing we is it's, we don't live in a we culture. We don't live in a we culture. I've said this many times. The problem is individualism. And in North America, that's one of our biggest challenges. We sort of grew up, we've, we've, we were weaned on Rugged, individualistic heroes, right? I blame Rocky and Rambo. It's all Sylvester Stallone's fault. Like, I watched all these movies growing up where the individual could do it, right? It didn't matter if there were thousands of enemies. One man standing alone was the answer. And so what has happened is we built a culture on some of these preconceived ideas that it's not about a team that comes together and lends their strengths to each other. It's actually about one super strong leader. So when we look for something to be led in North America, we often default to that thinking. We say, where can we get one super strong leader? Like the last guy we had who burnt out. Well, maybe if we'd actually pulled together a team, maybe if we'd done it together, if we had the power of we and not just I, we wouldn't be burning out leaders. 
But we're not postured that way in North America. We don't naturally do that. I don't naturally do that. I grew up breathing the same air that you did, watching the same individualistic heroes be stronger than everyone else on their own, with no help and without a team. I was reading um, George Barna. George Barna is one of the guys who's done tons and tons of research on the church. Tons of, you know, one of his latest books is basically, uh, I can't remember the title, but it's basically The Power of Team Leadership is the gist of the, of the title and, and the book. And just reading that book, and he was saying, for years he did all this research about what was right and wrong in the church, and then he said, I missed it, I missed it, I missed it. We've been trying to find solo leaders who can carry the ball because they're superstars and they have it all together and they have no weaknesses. And that's been a recipe for disaster. What we do need is we need teams of leaders who come together and, and, and one person's strength is what helps the other person's weakness. And that person's strength comes right back and helps the other person's weakness. And it happens around the table. That's what we need. But we don't always go that way. Now, I love the New Testament, how it gives us a really great balance between individual responsibility, which is important, by the way, and caring for one another's needs and, and working in team. In fact, Galatians 6, 2-4, I think is a beautiful picture of it. Let me just read it to you. Now, there's lots in it, but I'm just going to grab onto two phrases. You'll see them as, as I read. Galatians 6, 2-4. Carry each other's burdens. That sounds like we, doesn't it? And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks there's something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. So carry each other's burdens. Carry their own load. What am I supposed to carry? They actually sound contradictory if you first read them. You say, well, am I supposed to carry my own load or am I supposed to carry someone else's load? Both. Both. I think you should take personal responsibility in your life to work hard, to strive, to develop discipline, to train yourself in those ways. I think you should do that. I think that would be good. And everyone in North America says, amen. But I think you should also be not just looking out for your own needs, but like Jesus, look out for the needs of others to help them carry their burdens. And here's the third one that never gets mentioned because it's not directly said in this text, but you should do this too. And you should let them help you carry your burdens. Some people are like, be strong, take responsibility, amen. Help those weak guys? All right. I'm still the hero. Two for two. And guess what? You're not that strong in some areas. Oh, I don't like that. But it's true. It's true. When we have a culture where leaders are faking it till they make it, they often don't make it. We need a little bit more vulnerability where we can say, I'm not good at this. 
right? I, I love, okay, this is what you could, a lot of teams do this. If you're in a leadership team context, you might do this. You might have done this. I, I'd be curious if you've ever done it. Um, is sometimes you can take like those tests that sort of analyze what strengths people bring to the team. Like there's a DISC test, there's a Myers-Briggs test, there's Strength Finder. How many has ever done anything like that in any, any environment at all? I think it's rare. Okay, some of you have. Wow, that's great. Now, they often get done and then forgotten, right? They're in a dusty file somewhere. But if that, you can actually retain those, that information for a smaller team. Like if you did it with 20 people, forget it. If you did it with five people I, or less, I bet you can actually remember it. I bet you could actually remember it. And that's the key. You've got to remember it so it's daily useful, right? Now, one of the, what those tests give you helpful in is they help you to be able to talk about your strengths without bragging and be able to talk about your weaknesses without whining. That's really helpful. Say, well, here, are, this test says I'm strong at this. Like, yeah, I sort of recognize that in my life. Yeah, it doesn't sound like you're bragging. It sounds like you're just recognizing reality. This test also says a zero score for this. <laughs> so I might need other people to help me in that area. Yeah. And then the person across the table goes, I got 100 in that. I'll help you. Would you? Yeah. These are all foreign concepts, I know. Because we're North Americans. Or most of you grew up in North America. We didn't grow up in a communal society. In some ways, there's a bit of catch-up. But carry each other's burdens. Carry your own load. And the one that's implied is that sometimes you're the one who others will need to carry your burden and help you. So, become strong. Become disciplined. Nothing wrong with that. But even if you put all your effort of, of your life into, into trying to turn your weaknesses into a strength, they'll never be as strong as people who have that as a natural strength. So enlist those people on your team and say, you're stronger at this than I am. You're better at this than I am. And I need your strength. And I have some strengths too that I can lend to the team. And let's do this together. And we can do way, way more. I'm going to read you a story about we. It's a we story. Anyone got the time? Thank you. All right, let me read you a story. Now, it's been cold, and not all of you got a hot vacation. I didn't either. So I'm going to read to you a, a story from Hawaii, and I want you to just pretend you're there. All right. One of the more popular sports on the islands is canoe paddling. In this sport, six paddlers make up the engine room for an outrigger canoe of the type that traversed the islands more than 200 years ago. Although navigating one of these ancient canoes may look like child's play, the actual technique requires much more than meets the eye. One summer, six of us from church received an invitation to compete as a crew in an upcoming canoe race. We were game for something new, so we accepted the invitation and immediately sought out a canoe instructor from a nearby club. We started our first les lesson in a lake of brackish water. Our instructor sat astride the nose of the canoe, facing us as he called out signals and instructions. Once we took our places, the first lessons began. Okay, everyone, he yelled, this is how you hold a paddle. 
Then he modeled the correct form. As we figured out which end we were supposed to grasp and with what hand, he continued to instruct us. We're going to paddle our first stretch of water. It will be an eighth of a mile sprint. When I begin the stopwatch and say, go, you paddle just as fast and as hard as you can. When we cross the finish line, I'll notify you. That's when we can stop paddling. Got it? How hard can this be, I thought. Even children paddle canoes. This ought to be a breeze. Just then, the sharp call of our coach shattered my, my self-confident thoughts. Ready? Go! With our muscles bulging and sinews stretched, we burst out of our dead-in-the-water starting position like a drowning elephant trying to get air. We thrashed the water with our paddles on either side of the canoe, not knowing when to switch from one side to the other. We all figured it made sense to switch when one arm got tired. So firing at will, I crossed the blade of my oar over and across the canoe. And when I did, I scraped the back of my fellow paddler seated directly in front of me. He grunted as my oar etched a red mark across his spine. But neither of us stopped. We just kept wildly, flame, wildly flame, flailing our arms like amateur ice skaters trying to regain their balance. We were on a crusade. Yet soon it felt as if hours had elapsed. My arms began to feel heavy as lead, and my lungs felt on fire. My teammates' back had started to bleed, and water had filled our canoe halfway to the top. The elephant was beginning to drown when we finally heard our coach say, Okay, stop. Thank God, I thought. We abandoned the sinking canoe and let our bodies slump into the water, totally exhausted. One minute, 42 seconds, our coach called out. Pretty sad. Like war-torn warriors, we comforted each other, apologizing for the scrapes and wounds inflicted by our flailing paddles. We started bailing water out of the lumbering canoe, which by now looked more like a listing submarine than a sleek racing vessel. Coach gathered us whimpering novices together, and after sharing a few basics about safety, taught us how to paddle as a team. Each fledgling paddler was to mirror the man in front of him, and everyone was to move in time with the lead stroker. Coach taught us how to switch our paddles to the opposite hand without injuring each other. We practiced together again and again until our stroking became as rhythmic as a metronome. We were, we were beginning to look good. After a few practice runs, Coach took us back to our original starting position. All right, he said, let's try that same eighth-mile stretch again. Only this time, I want you to stroke as if you were just taking a leisurely stroll through the park. No sprinting, just mirror the one in front of you and switch with a smooth cadence of, a, of rhythm, just as you were taught. Stroke as a team. Feel the movement of the canoe. It's sort of like riding a skateboard. Once you get it going, you just nurse the glide. And don't try to break any sound barriers this time, okay? With new confidence, we each took our mark. Coach barked out the starting signal. Ready? Go. Our oars silently entered the water, coordinated in perfect time. Our canoe cut through the water like a knife through jelly. We switched sides without skipping a beat. We each mirrored the rower in front of us. Somehow, in just a few minutes, we had been transformed from a drowning circus animal into a precision machine. Then, just as we began to feel the exhilaration of our smooth progress, our jubilant coach yelled, 
Okay, stop paddling. This ahead of expected arrival caught us all by surprise. Anybody tired? We all shook our heads. No. Coach held up his stopwatch so that we could see the truth. Then he exclaimed, you beat your last time by 24 seconds. We couldn't believe it. Nobody injured? No one overboard? No one exhausted enough to keel over? No canoe deluged with water? No fire in my lungs? In sheer delight, we congratulated each other, gave a few victory shouts, exchanged lays, and that's the flowers, and took pictures. This was amazing. And we did it together. We had paddled as a team. We strive. We strive. The book is called Doing Church as a Team. <laughs> we strive together. So we talked about we. Let's talk about strive. 1 Corinthians 15, 9-10 says, For I, this is Paul again, I'm the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. If anyone was disqualified because of bad behavior for being a follower of Jesus, this was the guy. You know, sometimes I have people tell me, I could never go into the doors of a church because I'd be afraid lightning would hit me. This is the main lightning rod, if there ever was a lightning rod. He killed Christians. He killed Christians. He didn't deserve to be called an apostle. He didn't deserve to ever be a follower of Jesus or a leader in the church. But then he goes on to say, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. So what kind of effect did it have? No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. What does the grace of God do in our lives? Or what effect does it have? You say, well, the grace of God, what is that? What is the grace of God? Well, it basically means, well, I, when I was young, we learned an acrostic for it, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Basically, Jesus paid the debt that we really should have paid. Jesus did the work we couldn't do for ourselves. Jesus died the death, the sacrificial death of a, of a pure, sinless man on our behalf so that we could have uh, a relationship with God, so we could be reconciled with God. So Jesus did the work. So you think, well, if, if a religion is built, built around the fact that God does the work and not man, which is fairly unique, by the way, most religions are around the fact that there's a plan set out for you, and if you do it, you achieve. And Christianity is not like that. So it's very interesting. Christianity is not about earning a right standing with God. It's not about earning uh, reconciliation with God. It's not that we initiate a reconciliation process with God. He initiated it with us. So it's not about earning. But that doesn't mean it's not about effort. It doesn't mean it's not about effort. Listen to what effect it had. The grace of God was not without effect. I worked harder. I worked harder. I worked harder. 
I did a whole bunch of reading. I was going to present a whole piece on the Protestant work ethic today, but it was so conflicting and confusing, and everyone disagreed. But I realized that people don't get it. People don't get this piece. So God did it all, so what do I do? Sit on the couch? Eat three bags of potato chips? What do I, is that what I do? No. Because God has done this for you, it inspires you. It, it motivates you. In fact, his love compels us to work for him. And is there anything for us to do? Oh, yes, there's so much for us to do. There's so much for us. In fact, before we were born, God had in mind good things for you to do, good works for you to do. He had those already in his mind for you to do, for you and me to do. So Paul said, I received the grace of God. I didn't deserve it. I surely did not deserve to be a follower of Jesus. I did not deserve for God to cancel the record of the sins that I had committed. I did not deserve for God to give me his righteousness, to allow me to be a friend with, with him, himself. I didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve what Jesus did. I didn't deserve it. But that grace had an effect on me. That grace had an effect on me, and it had an effect in how hard Paul worked. It led to an incredible work ethic. Philippians 3.12 talks a little bit about this same dynamic. Again, it's Paul talking. He says, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. This is really good for Christians to hear. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have not obtained all that you are meant to obtain and you have not arrived at your goal. Now that you have received the gift of God, salvation, being right with God, that's, wow, that's the biggest most, it's the, it's the biggest game changer in your life. But you're not done. You're not done what God has in store for you to do. You haven't obtained all that you're meant to obtain. You have not arrived at all you're meant to arrive at. So Paul says, I haven't obtained it all. I haven't arrived at my goal. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. God took hold of you so you could take hold of the work and the results that he had planned for you. God's got a plan for your life that involves efforts, that involves striving, that involves doing something. You don't do that so that you're right with God. You can't do that. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. But because you didn't earn it, and because you didn't deserve it, and because it was a free gift, and because you're living out of the gratitude of what he did... You work, you plan, you strategize, you aim. There's direction and purpose to your steps. I love, I'm going to need four verses, Paul writing to Timothy. I think they're great. I love them because they keep talking about this dynamic. First Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Timothy, focus. You can get distracted by these myths and these tales and, and all these different things. Focus. You're meant to train yourself to be godly. Train yourself to be godly. You don't fall out of bed and become godly. There's a progression. It's called becoming mature in Christ. So train yourself to be godly. Then a few verses later, 1 Timothy 4.10, he says this. 
That is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God. Again, does having hope in God make you lethargic and lazy? Well, it might be if you don't realize that God's called you to greater things and that God's called you to do things for him and in partnership with him. Dependent still on his grace, right? Dependent on his grace. But we labor and strive. The hope that we have in the living God causes us to do that. And then here's the last part. I think it's the, this is the, how it gets packaged together. 1 Timothy 4.16. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So if you strive, if you watch your life and doctrine closely, why would you do that? Why would you pay attention to how you live your life? Or what you believe? You say, I'm already a Christian. I'm already a follower of God. I'm going to heaven. What more do I need? Why has God still got you here? Why are you still here? This isn't as good as heaven. It's because all people matter to God. And all of those people, God has a heart to see them come into relationship with him. And he wants to make them and you mature in Christ. That's why you're still here. So Timothy, persevere. Pay attention to your life. Pay attention to what you believe and your teaching and doctrine. Pay attention to that. Persevere in it. So that all people can be reconciled to God and mature in Christ. Because that's what you're called to. He says, if you persevere in them, you'll save yourself. And I think he's talking about the transformation that happens in life as people continue to follow Jesus and become more and more like him. And you'll also save your hearers. You'll save the people who listen to you. There's still a job to be done. And we're still here to do it. Now, what's the problem? The other North American problem that I'm going to point out today, and it's probably a problem worldwide, is people hate discipline. I hate discipline. I I shouldn't say it that way. I've hated discipline, and I'm growing to love discipline. I'm in a journey. I'm in a journey. Proverbs 5 could have been my testimony for my youth, and I hope that it is the opposite for my old age. Proverbs 5, 11 to 14, At the end of your life you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, How I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors, and I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. Quite a picture. Paul, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.25, instead of, he said, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Of course, he used the illustration of, of the Olympic-type games that happened in, in Greece at that time. They do it to get a crown that won't last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. The only thing that's going to last forever is those all people. That's the only thing that's going to last forever. Whatever car you drove this morning, whether it was a clunker or a really sweet ride, it's not going to last forever. 
That's going to last forever, though. All people are going to last forever. And so Paul said, I know that God has taken a hold of me so I can take a hold of this mission and accomplish it. And so I go into strict training because what I'm training for is not something temporary like the laurel leaf you'd get if you won the Olympics or a gold medal around your... or a world record. I'm going into stricter training because I'm going for a greater prize. The prize of seeing an individual reconciled to God. Of seeing a person become mature in Christ and that they become more and more loving like Jesus, serving like Jesus, forgiving like Jesus, mercy and compassion. So when we come back to our mission statement, it says, we strive. So the work God did on our behalf causes us to work like he does. We, we can't be the Messiah. We can't be the one who, we don't, we can't take the sins of the world upon ourselves. He only could do that. But we look at his example. That he came as a suffering servant. And we recognize that that's what he's got for us. That we're called in some ways to lay aside our needs and, and suffer sometimes. And to not just look at our own life, but to look at the lives of others and to serve. And then we see that Jesus had a love for all people. In fact, that's what people often mistreated him over. He hung out with the wrong people. Jesus, you shouldn't be with those people. You're holy. They're not. That's the point. Jesus said, who do you think doctors come to help? Sick people. Which is all of us. God loves all people. So we need to value all people. The reconciling heart and action of God causes us to seek to see people reconciled to God. He said, God, you care about their eternal destiny. You care about their relationship to, the, to, to, the, to, um, to you. Lord, help me to care about their eternal destiny. Help me to care about their relationship with you. And finally, mature in Christ, the transformation that God brings in us causes us to seek that, to see other people transform. You say, wow, I can see that Jesus has made a difference in my life. It's a significant difference. I have a long ways to go. But I see the difference he's made in my life. I want that for my friends. I want that for my family. I want that for my coworkers. I want that for people on my sports team. I want that for people I meet in the community. I would want this for all people. I would want this for everybody. And so we're offering ways to train people. Harry, what time is it? Can you help me with that? Thank you. I got it in stereo. That was awesome. Great. So we're offering ways to train people. Let me just let me just try to bring it down with this here. In the next few weeks, we're going to launch three initiatives to help us accomplish our mission. We're going to do Alpha. It's starting up, uh, I think, March 5th. Am I right on that? 6th. March 6th. We're going to start Alpha. You know what we did? In the fall, we gathered about 100 people together and we asked them, what could we possibly do to 
accomplish this piece of reconciling people to God, seeing more people reconciled to God. As individuals, we often feel like, I'm not sure how to do this. I want to help people come into a relationship with God, but I don't know how to do this. Do you feel that? I feel that. I'm not sure how to do that as an individual. What if there was a team who did that together? That might be a good idea. That might be a good idea. And so out of that came the suggestion. Many people made the suggestion, we should start an alpha at our church. We should do it, uh, and uh, that would be a great, it's, it's a really great setup. It's, it's a place where people who are curious about Christianity can come and get questions answered and learn about it. It's a great entry point that way. So if that's where you're at and you want to know more about this, come. Also, you say, I just don't know how to explain this to my friends. I don't know how, I, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I just want to be able to have language and, and understanding on how to explain reconciliation to God, to somebody else. I would encourage you to join up with Alpha. We actually asked our team what we should do. And our team said we should do this. So we're doing it. Because we're listening to the smarts of our team. We appreciate the inquiry that we made and the feedback that we got. It was helpful. After that, we're going to do, we're going to do conquer again. Last, last year, we did something that was a bit bold and breathtaking for us, and that was we launched conquer in our church, which is all about sexual purity for men. And we were like, who's going to come to this? We don't know. We hope lots, but we don't know. We had uh, 50 guys come to it, and probably every week we had over 40 guys in attendance all the way through the whole series of, of training with Conquer. And we said, there's two, there's two reasons why we want to do this. One, because we live in a sexually obsessed culture. I mean, sex is good. God created it. It's his creation. It's wonderful. But boy, it sure gets twisted. And it doesn't always end up being wonderful in people's lives. And in fact, lots of people have found themselves mired in addiction because of it. Or because of it not going well. And how can we win in this battle that it seems like we're in in this area? Well, I don't know how an individual is going to win that battle. Just be stronger. Just try harder. A lot of guys have hung on to that and it didn't work. But you know what a lot of guys are finding? That doing it as a team actually works. It was amazing last spring. I mean, you just get guys around this topic and, and fuel them with enough Timbits. And they just opened up, and guys were like, oh, man, guy time, this is awesome. And it really was a powerful environment. I met just a couple weeks ago with three leaders from our church who have just sort of organically risen up. And they've just said, this is important. We need to do this again. We need to do it, uh, go broader we have something, a tool, and, and a program that we think can help the greater church in Moose Jaw. So we made some decisions. We sent posters out to all the churches in Moose Jaw. We just said, hey, if you've got guys who want to win in this area, come join us. I'm hoping there'll be some churches that will get a vision for it, and they'll come back and say, hey, we actually want to start a conquer group in our church. And that we can say, we can tell you, how to start it. We can, we, we can tell you to take your first steps. We can tell you how to get going. I mean, we just think the enemy has taken so much territory in this area that it's about time we took a bunch back. 
And I think it should happen all over Moose Jaw. I think men everywhere should say enough is enough, but not just be mad and not know what to do with it. They should have tools put in their hand, weapons, so that they can fight back and be effective. And so, we strive. All people. We've got, we've, there's stuff starting to work, starting to happen. There's a little bit of leadership that's rising up for women in this area. That's, it's not all as far, like we're about a year ahead with the men. But the women are catching up. And you know how it is with women. Eventually they'll be ahead of us. But uh, it's great. It's great. All people, all people, sex should not be a bad thing. For all people. It should not be a destructive force in the world. For all people. So we strive. So I was so thrilled. Three leaders. I met with these three guys, and they just said, Steve, you don't need to lead this. We'll lead this. I love that. I love when champions rise up, and they just say, we'll lead this. The three of us. We'll be a team. We got this. Version 2.0 is going to be way better than the first time we went through it. So we're launching that. Let me give you the last one. Set free retreat. We've been doing this for, I don't know, three, three and a half years. Uh, we just keep doing this. We just keep committing. Why? Because we want people to be mature in Christ. And you know what? Sin is, is, is people are, it's amazing. So even people who have, um, the power of sin has been broken over their lives through the cross. Still sometimes are really mired in sin. And a lot of the ancient practices that the church would practice, like confessing sins to one another, they'd sort of fallen by the wayside. And so the current day's church is not as strong in this area as churches might have been in the past. And so we're saying, well, let's just restore to the church the things the church always did that made it tough, made it strong. Let's just say, if sin is not our master, and if Jesus is our master, let's find a way to live in line with that. And so we do the set free retreat, and we've been just doing it two times a year, every November, every March, every November, every March, March 15th and 16th this year. Come out. Do a, do a, a thorough spiritual inventory of your life. Walk away with that just clean feeling in your soul. Get some training so you can help other people with that. All of these things. Alpha, it's for you, and so you can help others. Conquer, it's for you, and so you can help others. Set free, it's for you, and so you can help others. All people are always in mind. Because we're striving together to do these things. Whenever we do a membership class, and I'll end with this, and, and in a second our board chair is coming. So, when we do a membership class, we always say, we're trying to clarify commitment. First, your commitment to Christ, most important one. Are you have you made a commitment to Christ? Have you accepted that he's the forgiver that you need and the leader that you need? Have you accepted that? Have you committed yourself to Christ? And then have you committed yourself to Christ's church? He's building a church, one that the gates of hell will not be able to stand against. You should get a, be a part of that, be a part of the body, not just be a lone ranger individualist, but be a part of the body. And then clarify your commitment to a part of that body, which is like a local congregation, like Hillcrest. 
And so we explain the mission statement when we're doing that. We strive to see all people reconciled to God and mature in Christ. And you know when we do that, what do people do? They go, huh, do I want to be a part of this? Do I want to be a part of this? And then you know what people do? They say, yes, I want to be a part of this. We say, it's not a country club. It's not about all privileges. It's actually about putting your, your shoulder behind the cart and pushing. And people say, I want to be part of this. I want to be part of this. We say, you know, there's self-denial involved. And people say, yeah, I want to be a part of that. We say, seriously, there's not very many benefits. And they say, no, I believe in this. I want to be a part of that team. I want to be a part of the people who strive to see all people reconciled to God and mature in Christ.